phrase, faith is a verb. Uh, last time we talked about mercy triumphing over judgment, and now we're going to tackle a even, even more difficult passage, I think. But before we get into it, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for today, this morning. Um, thank you for the rain, and thank you for uh, healing the land of, of forest fires and of bringing your presence this morning in worship, how you always do. We thank you for your faithfulness and your joy and the, uh, the peace that comes from the knowledge of Christ. We pray that this morning that your truth would, it be, um, would be all around this place, Father, that your people would be lifted up, encouraged, and that we would all uh, just know a bit more of your heartbeat for us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so let's get into it. James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires of battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4, 1 through 10. So, um, a little troubling at first read, but in accordance to Glenn's Bible reading rule, number one, context is key. So, hopefully, at the end of this, you'll be a little more understanding of what James is trying to get at here. So, to get right into it, the world versus the earth. Um, Jesus in John 16.33 saying, I have overcome the world versus the earth. Uh, a lot of times in the Bible, there'll be um, that kind of dilemma between, is he talking about the people of the world or like the literal earth itself? Uh, in most cases, as in James here this morning, world in the most... In most scripture examples, rarely refers to the earth, but it's people instead. Uh, some examples that kind of refute James 4, because you read that and you say, well, I thought God made the earth and he said it was good, and I thought that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and we see those examples in Genesis and in John. And that's, um, that's again, one of these things where if you read James 4 straight out of context, just as is, um, you'll be saddened. I was saddened. And um, we've got we to gotta press through it. We've got to fight. So, James 4.4, 4, um, the best of the bunch here, is he just goes right at it. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Enmity and enemy against God for um, being a friend of the world. And so immediately our reaction is, well, well, I love the world. I love the good things of the world. I love my family. I love my church. I love my home, my car, my job, 
the provisions of God, um, and so you're, you're confused by that, as am I. But I'm pleased to announce my very first I break for Greek slide. <laughs> There's two. This is the first one. Uh, this one is cosmos, or probably cosmos, but cosmos is fine. Um, so there's 187 uses in the New Testament, typically referring to the world as the ungodly, not necessarily all people. So the ungodly or the world, that's troubling. We keep going from the strongest concordance, one of the most uh, standardized, popular concordances for uh, biblical exegesis, says, um, as the world, an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution, order, or government, the inhabitants of the earth, men, or the human race. And there we see the ungodly, the multitude, the whole mass of men, alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. And that's key where we start getting into it, is the world being the people, the ungodly people who are hostile to the cause of Christ. And in that sense, James 4.4 4 is a little more understandable anyone who becomes a friend to the world, that world, again, meaning um, that whole ungodly mass of men hostile to the cause of Christ. Continuing, um, the world affairs, the aggregate of things earthly, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, seduce, from God and our obstacles to the cause of Christ, um, the world. Continuing on, a couple more examples. I know this is a lot. Um, just wait for Tucker's part. Uh, E.W. Bollinger's A Critical Lexicon and Concordance to the English and Greek New Testament. Thus, cosmos, now that we know, denotes the order of the world, the ordered universe, the ordered entirety of God's creation, but considered as separated from God. That's key right there. That's the enmity and enemy thing coming in again. Separated from God, the abode of humanity. That order of things in which humanity moves or of which man is the center. So James 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, friendship with a world in which man is the center, friendship with, with a world in which men are obstacles and are hostile to the cause of Christ, that's beginning to make a little more sense. Um, the Reformed camp of Christianity would tell you that the enemy is threefold. The flesh, the enemy, and the world. And off the cuff, you read that and you say, well, I love the world. Like, God made the world, and it's, it's good, and for God so loved the world. And that's another example of 4-4, um, where you say, I don't know if that's right. And so I think, um, as we look back on our examples of the world being the, um, the enemies of God, hostile to the cause of Christ, that's beginning to make a little more sense. Uh, St. Augustine, who is a very, very famous theologian um, of the olden time, he grew up in Carthage, and um, a city he loved very much, but was very much a snare to him, and he called it that cauldron of unholy loves. And I just thought that was a cool quote. So, um, Leading on to this symbol you've probably seen before, slash might be on your bumper, um, that is uh, not of the world, if you can kind of piece that out of that logo. Um, I had a, a friend in high school who did not know Christ, neither did I at this moment. Uh, and she came up to me and she said, hey, uh, this, check out this, this symbol I found on the internet. I think my girlfriend and I are going to get it tattooed on our wrists. And I was like, okay, that's, that's great. I had no idea what it meant. 
I look back on the Noah thing, that's pretty funny. Not of the world. Thanks. Thanks, Colleen. A couple more examples in Romans and our good friend James. Romans 12.2, the first half. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. Now we know what the world means. Uh, and from an earlier passage of James 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world the world being a stain or a pollutant or an enemy. Breaking for Greek, part two. Philia. Philia. From the complete biblical library for the Greek-English dictionary lexicon, um, meaning friendship based on love or permanence or strong unity or intimacy. It's funny that that version of um, philia, friendship, only happens one time in the New Testament scripture right there in James 4.4. 4. And so as we sort of understand now that we have a new definition of what the world is, and we're coming up on what a new definition of friendship means, as that last logo tells us, you're not in the world. Or you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Um, and you're not to befriend that world that we know now as defined in the original Greek sense to be tied to, to be a lover of, to be very much bonded to um, permanently. That's not our truth anymore. Um, that's not who we are anymore. Our home is in him. Uh, we've, been, we've been plucked up and we've been rerooted in Christ. Uh, so with that compassion that we know now of Jesus, we're able to kind of tether ourselves to the cross and to see the world all of it, the good, bad, and the ugly, and to say, I'm going to love this world the way I was intended to, with that leash on Christ, with that, that chain that will never be broken. Uh, our freedom in Jesus now allows us to really love people out of the world, or of the world, to love the hell out of them. Glenn Schroeder. Yeah. Schroeder Absolutely. It's the best thing you've ever said. <laughs> Pretty good, yeah? Love the hell out of them? Do you think about it? That's good. That's gold. <laughs> Our identity is sealed. We are now free. And quoting um, one of Glenn's favorites, beautiful eulogy, um, what always makes for a better presentation than bark and bite is a proper understanding of living life filled with solemn light. So we walk this fine line of walking in light of God's kindness and live with a sense of worldliness without the fear of compromising, loving God and neighbor until Christ comes to split the sky or die in a society hailing Jesus as Messiah from the song Exile Dial Tone. Uh, the key part there being live with a sense of worldliness without the fear of compromising because we've been anchored, because we've been rooted now. Um, we very much, and it sounds paradoxical, but we have to live a very worldly Christianity. Um, next slide. Continuing with the arrows, like Glenn loves so much. Step one, see the gap between the church and the world. Step two, realize your solidified identity in Jesus as in the world, not of it. And step three being to minister in compassion to the world from a place of rootedness.
Now, with all we know about what friendship is and who the world is, we must live out a truly worldly Christianity anchored to the love of Christ, to the, the faith that was expressed to us on Calvary, and that um, that will send us out into the world. But now we know who we are. We know what the world is. We know what friendship is. Um, we're safe, and the world is no longer a snare to us, but our mission field. And that's all I got. Tucker Arnold. Half of me just wants to stop right there and just be done. <laughs> I think we'd be okay. Uh, nope. Just, just to further on, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Unpack what some of the the passage in this. Uh, I kind of just went me through uh, each section and uh, James one through three. Uh, in my book, it my Bible, it's titled "Submit Yourselves to God," and so. Um, something that I had a takeaway reading one through three, which reads, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Uh, I wrote down uh, where our motives are wrong. So too are our wants and desires, which is why when we ask for the Lord for those wants and desires, uh, it's not, it's not given to us. That's later in the text. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. And so one through three, uh, James is really addressing the motives of the heart and then proceeds to, to talk about, um, friendship with the world, um, and and in this, uh, it's when we begin to look at our relationship with God through the lens of our motives of the heart. So he addresses motives first, and then proceeds into relationally what that looks like when we have wrong motives in an approach in our relationship with God, um, and when we get our our motives checked in. Uh, when he says, "You adulterous people," uh, when you think about us as the church and as individuals being the bride of Christ. Uh, the word adulteress stands out a lot more relationally when you think of it in the sense of you are the you are the bride to Christ. So you adulteress, you you cheating people, and what with what Brogan just told us about um, the world and and defining what it means when we become so attached to earthly things, we become so attached to our possessions and even to other people. Like we could our own spouses, our own kids. If we become more attached to those relationships and sown into things of the earth and not not with Jesus, then the adulterous mindset makes a lot of sense when you think about the context of being the, the bride to Jesus as our bridegroom. So that's something that really stuck out. For me, um, you, you commit adultery, essentially. Like, you, you commit adultery against the Lord when, when we begin to um, get tied up and sewn into all of our earthly possessions, all of our things, and all of our wants, and our stuff, and um, like many of us are going guilty of that with social media, uh, cars, uh, jobs, the list could go on. Um, and so James is really addressing a motive of the heart issue in that first, that first four, six verses. Uh, and then it goes on to say, anyone who chooses to be, I'm reading from a long way away, so give me a sec. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, continuing to stay in the theme of, of, of the, the motive of the heart and, and submitting our motives to the Lord. Um, take this real quick. Um, part of the now and not yet intention of living in, um, in, in living in submission and living in the tension of 
being in the world but not of the world uh, is, is sometimes we'll have days where we do really, really well. You get, your, you get your quality Jesus time in. You get time in Scripture. It, it pours out in how you go about your work day. It reflects in, in your interactions with people. Like you, you, know, you kind of, as, as Christians, as we walk about our lives, we know when like, we are being faithful and being obedient. You can feel it in your heart when you, when you feel Jesus using you and, and moving on you throughout your day. And then there's going to be days that are really hard and really not awesome and really a struggle bus. Conveniently enough, today is that day for me. So that, that is really, it's very funny how that's all worked out. Um, and motives of the heart uh, all, all come into play. I'm sitting there in prayer <clears throat> before worship this morning, and I'm realizing, man, I've just got so many wrong motives and so, so prideful. And it's interesting enough, we're t- t- talking about submitting to God. So that was that was key. Um, but uh, what else I have here is um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And uh, realizing um, friendship with the world, living in the tension, um, coming into a place of humility and recognizing that we cannot do it on our own and recognizing that um, the enemy has a really strong foothold when we don't draw near to God. As, as the scripture continues, says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And the order of that, I don't think there's any like actual theological significance, but it's just interesting to me. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee, and the next instruction is, come near to God, and he will come near to you. So I, the way I, I've understood that, or I see it, is, is more time spent with Jesus, drawing near to God, and, 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 and drawing near could look a plethora of ways. For me, I, I wrote down um, recognition of, of things I've struggled with, with my past, my past stuff, um, uh, recognizing the work of the cross, what Calvary has done. Uh, those, those kinds of things kind of are humbling of self and drawing near to God. And in doing so, you resist the enemy. When you humble yourself to the, to the recognition that I cannot do this on my own, I cannot just be in, in the world and loving the world, because when I do, I stumble, I struggle, I fall. Um, he comes to this place, which for I was scratching my head for a long time with verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Right after he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James. James. What a guy. Jeez. Really, really tough. So I had a, I had a hard time like, wrapping my head around this because all of the letters from Paul are like building up and equipping the saints, telling like you're a royal priesthood, you are a saint, and then you've got James later on, you sinners and double-minded. And so it's like a little, little tough. Um, and but the the key thing, grieve, mourn, and wail. My footnotes in my scripture in this Bible say uh, repent. That really what it's talking about is repenting. And so um, as we draw near to God and we repent and we reflect on the things that He's done for us, grieve, mourn, and wail. I can speak for myself on this one. In my times with Jesus, I cry a lot. Like, I find myself crying a lot. You grieve, mourning, and wailing. Like, when you recognize what your shortcomings, you recognize a major need for Jesus, it, it hits hard. It can hit home. And not out of a, oh, woe is me, I am the worst, I am, that's not, because that's not the heart of the Father for you. It's, it's simply a recognition of a need for Jesus. It's a humbling of self. 
Um, humility is not degradation of oneself, but recognition of our need for Jesus. Um, so when you, when you humble yourself in drawing near to God, you're not saying, I'm the worst and I suck and blah, blah, blah. That's trash. That's, not, that's no longer how Jesus sees you. What you're simply saying is, I need to continue to lean on Jesus for me to be what he's called me to be. Uh, and, and that means how we interact with the world will require constant drawing near to God, constantly um, meeting with him in a, in a place where we can remain humble. Uh, if we get too puffed up in our pride with our possessions and our things and our relationships, we will stumble, we will fall, we will quarrel, we will fight what he says in those first four verses. Um, so that's something that really was heavy on my heart. Uh, and it wraps up with verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Um, so it's just a big old addressing of humility, motives of the heart, uh, trying just to tag along, tie that in with, with Brogan's, you know, to, to be friends with the world but not in the world requires a humility of self and, and recognition of, of a need for Christ in your own personal life so that when you go out and live your life, it reflects a need for Jesus. Not because you're broken or that you're, I mean, we all are, but not because you're messed up and, and you're bad and you're, but it's a reflection of relationship with Jesus should be the way we go out and live our lives to other people so that there, there's a recognition and a need for Christ. It, it's attractive. When we, when we are in right relationship with Jesus, people will notice and people will wonder what is going on there. Um, my old pastor, Lanny, always said, love them until they ask why. Uh, and, and, and to have that right heart and right standing is to draw near to God regularly. And that's one way, at least, to resist the enemy and humble yourself through time with Jesus. So I think that's it. If pastor wants to come up and be a pastor.